Okay, everyone, we are getting started here with another week. It is Monday, August 8th. I'm Moshe Wanunu, and you're listening to the Mo News Podcast. This is the place where we bring you just the facts from verified sources and a breakdown of what matters in the news. We read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. I hope that everyone had a uh, relaxing weekend as we get started here. All right, there's a lot to recap and look ahead to this week. We'll be getting to a number of things, including the latest in the escalating violence between Israel and Gaza. There is a temporary ceasefire. Let's see if it holds. Also, the Senate passed a major bill over the weekend on climate, healthcare, and taxes. I'll give you the details. There's new concern that polio is back. I'll give you details on whether you should be worried about that. Also, gas prices keep dropping. We'll tell you how long it might last. And looking abroad, The country of New Zealand is considering a name change. I'll have background on that, and we end with our weekly Good Mood Monday story to start your week off right. Okay, let's start with the Middle East, where we've been following the three days of violence. A ceasefire took hold late Sunday night between Israel and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad group. If you've been following my Instagram account over the weekend, we've been trying to track uh, the escalating violence that uh, took place as the uh, Israelis were bombing targets in Gaza and the Islamic Jihad group was sending hundreds of rockets into Israel. Officials out of Gaza say that 44 Palestinians, almost half of them civilians, and some children had been killed in the fighting. Israel says some of the dead, though, were killed by misfired Islamic Jihad rockets. The Israeli army, for their part, said militants in Gaza fired 580 rockets into Israel. The army said that its air defenses had intercepted many of them. Two of those shot down were being fired towards Jerusalem. Residents across Israel repeatedly went into shelters over the weekend. Several dozen were sent to the hospital with injuries. It was the worst fighting between Israel and Gaza since the uh, war you might remember last May. It was an 11-day war between Israel and the Hamas group that runs the territory. The ceasefire was brokered by Egypt, which has a relationship with both the Israelis and the Palestinians as it took effect late Sunday. There was a report in one Israeli media outlet that Islamic Jihad violated the accord eight minutes after it went to effect, shooting off new rockets. So it's still a shaky situation as we monitor it day by day. Backing up here, the most recent round of fighting all started with the Israelis arresting some members of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad leadership over in the West Bank territory. This is separate from Gaza where another several million Palestinians live. Palestinian Islamic Jihad then threatened imminent attacks following those arrests. That then led Israel to preemptively start bombing targets in Gaza. The Israelis say they took out the two top leaders of the terror group in Gaza over the course of the weekend. Islamic Jihad, you might know, is a smaller terror group than Hamas. Now, the group that runs Gaza is Hamas. They're a much larger group. They remain notably on the sidelines of the conflict over the weekend, though rhetorically they were supporting Islamic Jihad. They did not use any of their weaponry to support Islamic Jihad. It's possible that they feared Israeli reprisals, as well as undoing some of the economic understandings with Israel, including Israeli work permits for thousands of Gaza residents. You know, listen, Hamas here has to control the territory, has to govern. And so they didn't seem to want to get involved here. And frankly, in a real kind of Machiavellian way, saw that Israel was taking out a competing smaller terror group, some of those leaders. And so they probably didn't mind the fact that Islamic Jihad got pummeled by the Israelis in this most recent round of fighting. Islamic Jihad and Hamas are pretty similar. Jihad being a smaller group, Hamas obviously running the Gaza Strip, which has nearly 2 million residents. Both groups call for Israel's destruction. They have different priorities. And as we noted, Hamas is constrained by actually having to govern the Gaza Strip and deal externally with Israel. 
Hamas first took control of the Gaza territory uh, in a violent way over the Palestinian Authority in 2007. So Hamas has been in charge here for about 15 years. In that time, there have been four all-out wars with Israel, including the one I mentioned last May, and some other skirmishes. This one over the weekend seemed to just be between Israel and the Islamic Jihad group. Israel actually told Hamas to stay out of it this time. Ultimately, as we know here, the civilians suffer the most Many residents live in dire poverty uh, in the territory. It's mainly funded and supported by the UN and some external groups. Gaza is located in between Egypt and Israel, and uh, both countries have effectively blockaded Gaza for uh, the better part of a decade. So I'm going to keep monitoring that, and please uh, stay tuned to my Instagram feed for the latest there. Back home over the weekend, Democrats pushed through a significant economic package through the Senate on Sunday. While it is less ambitious than President Biden's original vision, it was a compromise Democrats are hopeful will help them in the fall midterm campaigns. It is estimated to be a $740 billion package. It does a number of things that include slowing global warming, bringing down pharmaceutical costs, and taxing corporations. The House will pick it up later this week, where it's expected to pass and then go to President Biden's desk. The Senate, you might remember, is a 50-50 situation. 50 Democrats, 50 Republicans. Vice President Kamala Harris cast the tie-breaking vote on Sunday after an all-night session to put the legislation over the top. You might know that the Vice President actually has an extra role as the President of the Senate, and one of those things is to break a tie, which has happened a lot this year, given that the Senate is 50-50. Now to the legislation. It is the biggest ever climate bill Democrats are touting, $80 billion for electrical vehicles. That includes up to $7,500 to buy an electric vehicle. That includes some electric vehicles, not others. Uh, Google to find out which ones. Up to $2,000 for a heat pump, 30% off home rooftop solar, $840 for electric cooktop, and up to $9,000 for electric panel or home insulation. There's a lot of incentives here in the legislation if you engage in buying or trying to support things that are more climate friendly. We also saw the biggest ever funding increase for the IRS, which actually has been seeing cuts for decades. The IRS has been complaining they don't have enough agents anymore to really do their business, which includes tax collection, right? Which you know helps the government fund things. So the IRS saw a boost in funding. On the tax front as well, Democrats pushed through a 15% tax on corporations with $1 billion in profits or more, and there were some health benefits. Well, Democrats tried to put a cap on insulin prices at $35 for all Americans who need insulin. That did not get through. Republicans were opposed to that measure, but Medicare beneficiaries do see a cap of $35 for insulin prices. Democrats also successfully averted a Obamacare cliff by extending health care subsidies for three more years and giving Medicare uh, more power when it comes to prescription drug negotiation. As I mentioned, this now goes to the House, uh, where if Democrats pass it, it'll go to the desk for President Biden, who will have this, as will Democrats, to campaign on this fall. You can summarize the opposition on the part of Republicans, basically around the fact that Republicans did not want to spend more money and they feel that another bill that is uh, spending $740 billion, even if it's paid for partially by taxes, uh, is not an effective use of funds. Now to a health story that we're watching out of New York State and some other places. New York State health officials have found indications of additional cases of polio virus in wastewater samples from two different counties. Both these counties are uh, upstate New York, just uh, north of New York City. It is leading New York authorities to warn that hundreds of people might be infected with polio. This comes as we're seeing reports out of Britain over in London, where they've also detected polio virus in sewage samples in the area. It was just two weeks ago that the New York Health Department reported the nation's first case of polio in almost a decade. That was in Rockland County, just north of New York City. 
Officials there said the case occurred in a previously healthy young adult who was unvaccinated and developed paralysis in their legs. They believe it actually came from someone who got the live vaccine abroad. The live vaccine, by the way, was phased out in the U.S. 20 years ago. In this case, someone got the live vaccine abroad, which in included some uh, small amount of the actual polio virus. And the person here was unvaccinated for polio virus, which is why they got it. The problem is that there is still a small segment of the population, less than 10%, I think around 7%, that still doesn't have the polio vaccine here in the U.S. Polio, you might know, is a serious and life-threatening disease. It is highly contagious and can be spread by people who aren't even symptomatic. For those who get symptoms, they appear within 30 days of infection. They can be mild or flu-like. Some people who are infected, though, and you might remember the famous pictures pre-vaccine implementation, that you can become paralyzed or even die from the virus. The polio vaccine was introduced in the 1950s. Before that, thousands of Americans died in polio outbreaks. Tens of thousands, mainly children, were left with paralysis. Again, you might have remember the black and white footage from back in the day. But there was a very successful vaccination campaign through the 60s and 70s. And polio was officially declared eradicated in the U.S. in 1979, so about 43 years ago. The vaccine is 99% effective in children who receive the full four-dose regime these days. The bottom line here, as I bring all this to you, experts say that people who are vaccinated against polio, which is most of us, you don't need to change your daily behaviors or panic about the disease. The issue is in some of the unvaccinated populations, even though the polio vaccine has been around for 70 years, there are some people who still don't get it and they are uh, susceptible to this. And so experts say, if you haven't, for some reason, gotten the polio vaccine, please go and get it. All right, we've been continuing to follow the Brittany Griner story. She's the WNBA player who was sentenced late last week to nine years in a Russian penal colony. Well, according to former U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Bill Richardson, he has been involved in negotiations here on behalf of the White House with Russia. He says he is hopeful about a prisoner swap. Griner and former American Marine Paul Whelan are both being held in uh, prisons in Russia. Richardson believes there will be a two-for-two two prisoner swap. He was on ABC News this week, over the weekend, he told the show, quote, my view is optimistic. I think she's going to be free. There's going to be a prisoner swap. I think it's going to be two for two. You might remember that several weeks ago, the U.S. offered a one for two swap. This was Victor Boot, a Russian arms dealer, in exchange for Griner and Whelan. The Russians pushed back, saying they want two for two. Griner has been behind bars since February. She says she was accidentally traveling with vape cartridges containing hashish oil that is illegal in Russia. So they uh, arrested her at a Moscow airport, held her, put her on trial, and uh, was sent, she was sentenced, as I mentioned, to nine years in prison. Whelan, who worked in corporate security after the Marines, was convicted of, quote, espionage, which he and the U.S. deny. He's been in a Russian prison for several years now. But Richardson is saying he is working on a prisoner swap, and he thinks they will come up with a two-for-two two deal. Okay, back here at home, the governor of Indiana, that's Republican Governor Eric Holcomb, signed a new abortion law into law late Friday night. That law is set to take effect September 15th. The actions make Indiana the first state to officially pass new legislation for an abortion ban since the Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade. That was in late June. Other states have banned abortion since then, but they had done that through existing trigger laws that were passed before Roe was overturned. In Indiana, it is a brand new law. The abortion ban is pretty restrictive. There are some exceptions, including if a pregnant woman's life is at risk. There's also exceptions for rape, incest, and lethal fetal anomalies, though the law imposes a very complicated process for performing those abortions under those exceptions. Doctors in the state who perform what is now an illegal abortion will lose their medical licenses. 
It has been notable. We've been hearing from some companies that are based in Indiana. That includes the big pharma company, Eli Lilly, which has been in Indiana for almost 150 years, has 10,000 employees there and is growing or had planned to grow in Indiana. The company now says that it is concerned that this law will hinder Eli Lilly's ability to attract, quote, diverse scientific engineering and business talent from around the world. They say they will now be looking at future growth outside of the state. Cummins, an engine manufacturing company that is also headquartered in the state, they say uh, in a statement that they oppose the law. They didn't indicate, though, if they're making any major moves. Now to something we've all been watching, gas prices. We actually marked this weekend. We surpassed 50 straight days. I think we're at 54 days today of prices coming down. Gas is now below $4 in several parts of the country. Actually, in 25 states, the average is now below $4. The national average officially, when you average all 50 states, is $4.06. The folks and analysts over at GasBuddy, which is a great gas tracking website, they believe we will be hitting a national average in the threes for the first time in 155 days, sometime in the next 24 hours. So as I said, 25 states now have below $4 average gas. The most common price is $3.69 a gallon. There's five states actually, where there's at least one station that has $2.99 or less a gallon gasoline. That's Texas, Oklahoma, Georgia, Kansas, Iowa. Congratulations, residents of those states. You now might be seeing gas a gallon of gas for less than $3. Texas, take a bow. You are the cheapest state for gasoline in the country. A gallon now costs $3.53 there. Oklahoma and South Carolina are the next cheapest. Uh, bad news, California, and I hear from some of you guys who live out there, you're still the most expensive. A gallon of gas in California, especially due to all the fees and taxes in your state, $5.42 a gallon. A lot of this has to do with us. And by that, I mean gas prices are supply and demand. When gas topped $5 a gallon national average earlier this summer, it appears drivers start to adjust their behavior, carpooling, combined errands, cutting out unnecessary trips. Uh, we've seen that gasoline consumption has been about 9% lower in recent weeks than it was last summer. It's pretty dramatic. Uh, and domestic crude oil supply has increased more than 6% from a year ago. So between more domestic crude oil and people just driving less this summer, especially as it got more expensive, you have seen now prices come down. Remember, gas prices are very complicated. I know some of you you know, think it's just an easy button for government to press, but ultimately it's a supply and demand thing. There's oil traders, it's global markets. And here it was really that simple. Americans drove less, and so less demand, more supply, prices came down. Let's keep our fingers crossed though that no major hurricanes or major new threats a la the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, happen this fall we could then see prices climb again. A heads up for everyone, a literal heads up. Uh, everyone needs to look up later this week on August 11th and 12th, that's Thursday and Friday, the Perseid meteor shower will be peaking for the summer. That's according to the American Meteor Society. The Perseids are caused by Earth passing through debris, bits of ice and rock left behind by Comet Swift-Tuttle. That one last passed Earth in 1982, but Earth uh, every summer passes through some of this debris uh, of ice and rock, and it's called the Perseid meteor shower. It is best seen in the northern hemisphere and down in the mid-southern latitudes, they say, uh, in the southern hemisphere. All you need to catch the show is darkness, somewhere comfortable to sit, and a bit of patience. It's going to be a bit harder this year with a full moon. Typically, in years uh, where you don't have a full moon, when it's peak meteor shower, you can see, you know, hundreds of these uh, meteors. Uh, this year, because of a full moon, it'll be harder to spot them. 
Thursday and Friday will be your best bet to see them. You just need to look north, those in the southern latitudes, specifically look north northeast to see the meteors. And I found this to be a cool fact. The peak temperatures for the Perseids are more than 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit as each fragment travels through our atmosphere and both compresses and heats the air in front of it. Most of the fragments are visible when they're about 60 miles from the ground. Okay, here's another story I've been following. This is down in New Zealand where there's a petition in the country to change the name of the country to its indigenous name. This all comes as New Zealand is confronting its nation's past with colonization and denying the Maori. The Maori are the indigenous people of the island rights. A petition has now collected 70,000 signatures, which is the amount necessary to prompt a parliamentary committee to consider the idea of returning the name of New Zealand to its indigenous Maori designation of Aotearoa. New Zealand first became a British colony back in the mid-1800s, but it was a Dutch explorer who was credited with the first Westerner to set foot on the South Pacific Island back in the 1600s. The Dutch would eventually name it Nova Zealandia after Zeeland. Zeeland is a province of the Netherlands, and they decided, as many Europeans did, as they discovered the, quote, New World, to basically put new in front of things, as in New York, New England. In this case, Nova Zealandia, New Zealand. This isn't, by the way, the first time Kiwis have attempted to shake off vestiges of their colonial past. Back in 2015, the government launched a public design contest seeking alternatives to the national flag, the flag of New Zealand, like many countries that the British uh, colonized have the Union Jack in their flag. But after spending $17 million on a referendum, New Zealanders elected to keep the status quo. It'll be interesting to see, though, that since New Zealand elected to keep their flag, despite all of that, what they do with the name of the country, again, the proposal is to uh, go to the name Aotearoa, which is the original indigenous Maori designation. And we end, as we always do on Monday, with a Good Mood Monday story. This one comes out of Nepal, where wild tigers have clawed their way back from the brink of extinction. If I had the uh, musical rights, I'd be playing you Eye of the Tiger right now. There are now almost three times as many wild tigers in the country as there were in 2009. That is from the Nepalese government. The prime minister of the country announced the conservation success on Friday morning. Here are some of the specific numbers they had in Nepal's National Tiger and Prey Survey 2022. They found that there are now 355 wild tigers in the country. That is a 190% increase since 2009. They found that there are now 355 wild tigers in the country. That is a 190% increase since 2009. In 2010, the Nepalese government said it was clear they're going to lose tigers altogether unless they made a concerted effort to turn things around. Well, it appears they have, and the uh, prime minister says they really stand out as leader of conservation. We will be getting numbers and other tiger preservation efforts across uh, South Asia and Central Asia in the coming months, I understand. But so far, bravo Nepal on your efforts. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Mo News Daily Podcast. We love your feedback on how we're doing, what we're covering, what you'd like to see us cover. Email us, podcast at mo.news. Subscribe to the Mo News newsletter over at monews.bulletin.com. And, of course, follow me on Instagram at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. And don't forget to follow us. Follow the show on your app so you make sure that it is there and available for you every morning of the week. And review us in the App Store. Every review makes a difference. And so I really appreciate those of you who have left us reviews. Uh, and help us continue to climb up the ranks in Apple, on Spotify, and whatever app you're listening to us on. I'll see everyone back here tomorrow.